You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick, Caitlin, we have some special guests this week. We have uh, Heidi Hertz from our Virginia team. Heidi, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. And Mike Acevedo from our New Jersey team. Mike uh, is a new arrival to the firm, came from the New Jersey legislature. And uh, Mike, welcome. Welcome to the team. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm a faithful listener, so I appreciate being invited on to to talk today about a couple of my favorite topics, politics in New Jersey. So, well, this is this is exciting. This is a big debut for you, Mike, and we should no mention that Heidi, you were in the last Democratic gubernatorial administration in Virginia. Mike, you work for couple of Democratic members in the New, Jer- New Jersey legislature. Yep. Patrick and Caitlin, uh, across the country this week, elections were held. Doesn't seem so far that anybody's contesting the results of the elections and pretty resounding victories for the Democrats, Patrick, across the country. What, what say you, Patrick? I mean, the thing I was texting around to a bunch of people because it just is at the, it's like kind of the most high level thought I have is growing up. I always thought of the Republican party as like, I just thought they were like the party that cared about winning more. And they, you know, reading about kind of all the Bush and Reagan era operatives, the Lee Atwaters of the world. Like this was a party that found a way to win and knew where the pulse of the general electorate was while the Democrats would kind of go off and get, crazy with certain ideas. And I, I always felt like the Democrats didn't value winning in the same way Republicans did. And I just don't, I don't understand how Republican primary voters can tolerate this or how Republican voters period can tolerate this. I mean, it has been election after election really since 2020, where the Democrats just keep overperforming. And I, I just you know, you look at the poll, you look at the polls that everyone focused on going into election night of how underwater President Biden is on like every single area of his administration. And then Democrats cleaned up. I mean, you had a margin of error race in Mississippi with the governor. It, it's just mind blowing to me that that this continues to happen. I, I really I mean, I thought it was going to be a good night for Democrats, but I mean, it was an excellent night and it it was pretty stunning, honestly. All right, Caitlin. You know, I thought Ohio was really interesting. We had both um, a constitutional amendment to protect women's reproductive health and abortion rights, um, in addition to recreational cannabis. And Ohio became the 24th state to pass recreational cannabis via amendment. More than half of the country now live in states where cannabis is legal. And I think it's really interesting to see how some of these you know, these issues move the needle. And, and and I think the I think the cannabis question actually outperformed the abortion constitutional amendment in the polls, which was really interesting. Uh, as, as a lot of folks know, we work with a, uh, several cannabis 
companies in the industry. But look, I do think it's hard to extrapolate too much what happened. Virginia is always a funky place. I'm excited to hear Heidi's take on this. We've still got, you know, a Republican governor in an otherwise pretty blue state. Yes, Democrats picked up, you know, flipped back the House of Delegates, but I don't think it, you know, it wasn't a a blue wave necessarily. Virginia has always sort of been a blue state. Not super surprising. Down in Kentucky, you know, Andy Bashir is a is a really good you know, Democratic governor of a red state that is beloved. And it really shows, and I thought those results showed, you know, all politics is local. People really like their governors in some of these key states. So I just would caution us not to extrapolate too, too far. You know, Biden was mm. not on ballot on Tuesday night. Well, but I mean, the Democrats overperformed a year ago in the midterms. And it seems like this is a part of a trend, not an isolated incident and and obviously you know we don't know what's going to happen next year but the warning signs are there if you're a republican you got to be concerned and it's i mean it was over performance in all places the question on my mind is is why uh is it is it the trump drag is it dobbs it's it seems pretty clear to me that the Supreme Court of the United States is out of step with the majority of the country, at least on from a social conservatism point of view. And certainly it appears to be the case on abortion. And there's no it seems like there's no doubt that that's motivated, continues to motivate people to go to the polls and the juxtaposition of the election results. Yeah. Biden wasn't on the ballot, but the juxtaposition of the election results with the poor polling coming out for Biden, just, it doesn't square. And I'm anyway, let's, let's get, let's get into it. Heidi, give us your take on what happened down in Virginia. Talk to us about the makeup of government in Virginia, and then let's go to Mike. Sure. Well, Howard, you're right. Biden was not on the ballot, but abortion certainly was. Uh, Going into the election, the top three issues for voters were the economy, K-12 education, and abortion. And I think the conversation that Democrats were having as they were running basically called that out, that we are the most Southern state going into the election that had not put any additional restrictions on abortion rights since that decision in June 2022. And we came out of the election in the exact same place, but also with a chamber that flipped. So abortion was definitely on the ballot for Virginians. Uh, the Senate, you know, the we expected the Senate to stay uh, blue. We expected the Democrats to win. I would say, you know, for the for the Republican strategists, the Dems did lose a seat in the Senate. So while there's still that 2119 majority and that blue brick wall that we like to hear about, uh, it may have crumbled a little bit. Uh, but it's it's still there. And then to think about what happened on the House side, uh, it is a very slim majority, but it is 51-49. And so to think about the, the messages that Virginia voters sent to say anything less than what women have access to now 
is a ban. And I think that was part of the rhetoric that Democrats were using going into going into the election. And what that does is it sets now the Democrats up to push back on other things, any restrictions on voting rights, any gun right uh, laws that they had seen coming, any education shifts. Um, the opportunity is that maybe we'll get some some working together, which we haven't seen for for quite a while. Some things are going to have to give. There's going to have to be some sort of compromise between the executive mansion uh, and the, the General Assembly building. But I think for Virginia voters, they were thinking about the economy and K-12 education, but overwhelmingly they were thinking about the abortion access for, for Virginians. Very good. I, Heidi, Biden wasn't on was not on the ballot. We've said that now multiple times. Was Trump on the ballot? I think Trump maybe was on the ballot in some areas of the state. We did see a couple of parts of regions of the state that we weren't expecting uh, to go dim that went dim. And then some of the more thoughtful, very red parts of the state that really are still that MAGA Trump ground, they stayed and they came out in waves again to vote for their candidates. They just weren't in the right parts of the Commonwealth to flip a few more seats. Interesting. Uh, Mike, and by the way, I want to observe for our listeners who obviously can't see the visual of our podcast, but I don't know if it's coincidence, but Mike and Heidi both wore blue this morning. So Mike, let's go to you and get a download on the Garden State. The great garden state. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah. So again, Democrats did extremely well. I know it's a blue state, but two years ago in the midterm election, um, excuse me, on the gubernatorial election, Democrats lost seven seats in the assembly. They picked up five of those so far. It looks like they're going to pick up a sixth one in um, a district that's very close. And again, when we look at the issues that were on the ballot, it's the same as Virginia. And I think it's the same uh, uh, nationally. It's the economy. Uh, reproductive rights uh, and and gun control. There was a poll that came out the day of the election in New Jersey, and those were the top issues. And Democrats really, really hit those issues. They talked about the economy, property tax relief. They talked about uh, and in New Jersey, where uh, you know women have uh, uh, the right to to access uh, you know ab- abortions and those type of um, uh, things. It is a settled issue in terms of the law, but Democrats still bring it up and still did very well on that. So uh, Trump was not on the ballot. I did not see any real even Trump attack ads. I did see a lot of ads talking about what some Republican candidates had said and some Republican senators have said when it came to reproductive rights. And those issues kind of won the day. Now, where Republicans did well in the state they talked about bipartisanship. They talked about what they were doing to uh, help the economy, to to give property tax relief to residents. Uh, and they didn't talk about these wedge issues. Republicans talked a lot about sex education, removal of books from libraries and parental rights in school. Those issues don't win the day. Those issues will bring out some voters, but they were not successful. Republicans spent a lot of time talking about those issues. Uh, and it just didn't, it, they didn't have a lot of success when it came to that. And these are both, I guess, Virginia is more purple than New Jersey, but they are both states that can elect, obviously, Democratic legislatures and Republican governors. I mean, there have been a number of Republican governors that are not, I guess, today's Republican party types, but the Chris Christie's and the Christy Todd Whitman's, 
And so these are states that, and obviously you have Yonkin in Virginia. And I mean, these are states that don't, aren't uniform in their politics. Mike, I'm glad you brought up the guns issue too, because I think that Mm -hmm. it definitely, you saw it in the ads. I feel like abortion and guns are, are the two issues that really move the needle in the suburbs right now. And I think it definitely, definitely played a role. I would be curious, your guys' perspective, just kind of taking in everything. My my kind of theory is I don't feel like, and it's kind of, you know, when you, your party wins, you, you sort of feel good or whatever. I don't feel like the Democrats are really winning anything. I mean, it's, it's, if you look at like the democratic messaging is in response to what Howard pointed out, a Supreme court that's wildly out of step with where the country is and probably will be for a generation and on guns, Republican inaction to do anything even remotely reasonable. It's not like Democrats are offering this forward-looking positive vision for America that everyone's buying into. The Republicans are losing. That's what's happening. The Republicans are not, they don't look like a normal mainstream party. They look like a bunch of weirdos and it makes like normal people across the country uncomfortable and that's why they keep losing every election. But I just, hey, that, that's like my my theory of what's going on, but I'd be curious, like what you guys picked up in your states. Well, I, I, I want to give Caitlin a chance to respond to that. Before. Caitlin should get a chance well, to respond. We're to not it. all a bunch of weirdos, Patrick, but um, you know, there are certainly some. I look, we saw a pivot. I don't know if any of you watched uh, these GOP presidential debates that, you know, may or may not even be relevant at this point in time. But I did. And what you saw on the stage that night, Nikki Haley did a little bit of a of a pivot. She's always been a thoughtful, you know, more. I want to be careful the way I phrase this because she is not a rhino Republican. Absolutely not. But her, you know, messaging around this issue, you're absolutely right. The Republicans have got to have a better answer. We've got to, you know, phrase things in, in a way that that makes sense and, and, and you know, pick a time frame and and figure out what our messaging on this issue is. And I really appreciated, you know, her statements on the debate stage about, yes, I might particularly be pro-life, but that doesn't mean that I judge those that are pro-choice and the states are deciding and what might be the law in Oklahoma is going to be different than what the law in Mm -hmm. New York or Illinois or California. And this is actually what we're seeing and what we saw on Tuesday. The states are deciding and making these determinations. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So yeah, Caitlin, I, I, I know that doesn't think Nikki Haley is doing a great job in these debates. And if she was the nominee, would have a great chance of getting elected president. But she isn't going to. And that's the whole it comes back the whole problem. It's like in your point, Caitlin, it's like when you watch those debates and you hear her talk, it all sounds great if that was like the process for picking the nominee. But there's this other thing happening that. For, for no pun intended, trumps the rest of the stuff. And that's the problem. Well, not to pick on something you said, Caitlin, but the you felt like you had to justify that she's not a rhino, which is exactly the problem. I mean, and not I'm not saying what you said is a problem, but the fact that the party has ostracized people for agreeing with some of what they stand for, but not being Trumpy is exactly why, in my mind, the party is losing. 
Well, it's also exactly why House Republicans had to pull two spending bills off the floor this week. And, you know, we are starting to see more of a resurgence of the moderates in the House of Representatives that are putting their foot down and said, we've had enough and we're not voting for some of the junk, a lot of it social issue related and abortion related in some of these spending bills. And they're making a difference. But I, I hear you, Howard. So, Heidi, back to Patrick's point. What- yeah, messaging was a big part of a new strategy for Republicans in two really big ways. One of them started uh, pretty much um, at the end of legislative session last year, where Republicans really leaned into early voting. Uh, Governor Yunkin embraced early voting in 2020 when Virginia had the Democratic trifecta. They passed the most or the longest uh, voting time period for for its citizens, 45 days. The Virginians have been voting since mid-September for these elections. And Republicans really leaned into that. Governor Yunkin, Republican caucus in both the House and Senate leaned into it, created a whole campaign on secure your vote. And the early returns were showing benefits for Republicans, that there were more voters uh, that were voting, Republican coming out to do early voting. What we saw at the end of that, though, was is that those returns were much less compared to even what they had been a couple of years ago. Uh, not as many early voters in Virginia that than we've seen previously. And in the words of you know some folks I've been talking to, uh, we cannibalized our own voters. That they were coming out early, but these were the same folks that would have voted in that way on election day. And I think the other strategy and messaging that was tied to what Republicans were doing. Governor Yunkin came out very early, uh, saying that tying his sort of standard for women's health and abortion to a 15-week uh, standard and and with some c- other considerations and really saying that's what we can all get behind, drawing that line in the sand to say, okay, now Democrats, and to Patrick's point, Democrats now coming back to say anything less than what we have now as a ban. So them coming out really early with that messaging on 15 weeks gave the opportunity for the Democrats to then say, no, that's not what we want. Uh, that would be considered a ban compared to what we have now. So I think those two were two really big messaging points uh, for the Republicans going into the election and and going into it thinking that that was a national strategy that could be used going forward for 2024 or beyond, and not sure that panned out exactly how they had hoped. Is, is this actually about abortion policy, or is this a proxy issue for social conservatism that's out of step with the majority of the country? It's a tough question. I yeah. mean, I think it's, I think the answer is probably yes. It's probably both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've thought about it a lot because if you, uh, this is more, ana- this is my attempt at analysis. I don't want to sound partisan because like, if you look at issues where I feel like Republicans are much better message than the Democrats, I'd put like immigration at the top of that list. Like Republicans all talk about immigration and the border for the most part with the far the extremes, like the same way. And Democratic messaging on immigration of the border is terrible and it's all over the place. And there's there's like no real cohesive response, but it doesn't break through the same way abortion does, because like if you live in I don't know suburbs where a lot of us live, it's just not you're not seeing it every day. It's not impacting your daily life. But abortion is just so unbelievably personal and the, the, the impact that it has had with female voters all across the country. I just I, I, I don't think there's any way you can overstate it. And, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And each election keeps showing it. 
And clearly the, the people who run these campaigns know it because, Heidi, when I was in D.C. last week and I'm at the hotel, it's in every ad. I mean, and Caitlin, you live in Northwest Virginia. I mean, I, I turn on the TV for an hour. It's every single commercial is a state assembly or Senate ad about abortion. Every single one. It's amazing what this has done from a political point of view. Mike, in New Jersey was, I mean, were people talking about the direction of the country? Were people talking about Biden? I didn't see really any talk when it came to Biden. Obviously, Democratic incumbents didn't necessarily want to bring up Biden. And I was surprised that Republicans maybe didn't bring it up a little more. But when it comes to the national mood, uh, at least in New Jersey, it's controlled by, I think, what's happening with the economy. And the economy has proved to be extremely resilient in the face of all these rate hikes and everything else. Uh, unemployment in New Jersey is still low. Wage increases are still happening. Uh, inflation isn't anywhere near where it used to be. I mean, it's still high, elevated, but it, it sort of has, has plateaued at the moment. So I think the Democrats were, were uh, uh, able to bring up what they have done in New Jersey to benefit residents individually and then tack on top of that the direction of where the economy is going wasn't necessarily as important because it wasn't a negative. If it were a negative, it would have dragged down the Democrats. But it's neutral to somewhat positive, I'll say, in the state at the moment. And Democrats talked about it more. Republicans just did not bring up. Uh, I always had seen in previous years, Republicans talk about tax and spend liberals, tax and spend liberals. I didn't see any of that. The week before the election, I saw an ad in my district in South Jersey talking about how Orsted, the wind energy company, pulled out of a couple of projects in South Jersey. It was such a misguided ad for the Republicans to run because people weren't thinking about that issue. And instead, they should have been talking about the economy uh, and what Democrats were doing in terms of um, uh, tax increases in previous years, and they just didn't. And This is an unfair question, but if Biden were on the ballot uh, this past Tuesday... How do you feel that would have impacted the election? So in New Jersey, there were a couple of seats that we picked up that we would not have picked up if Biden were on the ballot. Joe Manchin answered that question for us uh, yesterday. I mean, <laughs> we, the next time Kentucky gets a Republican governor, a Republican legislature, the first thing they're going to do is move that election from being an off-year election to matching up with the presidential because it's, I mean, it's a completely different electorate and allows for Democrats, particularly in statewide races, to do well. I mean, I think Democrats in red states know, even if it's Trump-Biden, Trump, when Trump's on the ballot, he will turn his people out in a way that doesn't seem to happen in general elections where his name's not on the ballot. And if Biden's numbers are still underwater, I feel like, you know, red state Democrats know they're in trouble. It's... um. I'm I'm not sure that the mansion I'm not sure that I put the mansion decision not to seek re-election on on Biden. You really think that's oh, a Yeah, I just don't think he thought he could win and right. he didn't want to he just didn't want to lose. I mean, he's he is as smart a political yeah. person within his own state as they come and I, he just there's no way he was going to put himself through that for something that almost certainly would have ended in defeat. I mean, it's a Trump plus I can't remember the number, but 25, 30 point state, right? I mean, it's. Well, it's, and maybe he's got bigger, more national aspirations, guys. I mean, no labels is chomping at the bit <laughs> to be able to, uh, 
announce him as their preferred candidate. So, so who knows what we're going to see coming from Senator Manchin uh, in the coming like, weeks? The, uh, that they also don't want to elect Donald J. Trump to the to the White House. Speaking of more national aspirations, though, Heidi, could I ask you, you know, I've seen a lot of these headlines saying that, you know, Governor Glenn Youngkin really comes out of this tarnish and this is a huge loss for his national stature and national profile. And I mean, I might just be biased, but I think they're kind of overplaying their hand a little bit on that. But what, how do you what are you thinking as far as Virginia? Do you really see this as a failure for Governor Youngkin or more just, you know, off your politics? I think it's a little bit of both. He was the face of the party for all of the elections. He really put his uh, presidential run or conversation around that on hold to say, my job right now is secure that is to secure the House in Virginia and maintain that, but then also to win the Senate. And he didn't deliver on either one of those. I will say, you know, his popularity is is soaring in Virginia. Virginians really like Governor Yunkin. Uh, and at this point now with the sort of checks and balances of the legislative branch and the executive branch now, you know, we know there are going to be a lot of progressive uh, policy packages coming across his desk. And we know he'll take action on those, likely with a historic number of vetoes to really, again, talk to the Republican base to say, these are our priorities, these are our values. Uh, but he said in an interview yesterday, he's like, my name is not on a ballot in, on in, in any other state. I'm not traveling um, to any other state at this point. I'm here in Virginia working for Virginians. So that rhetoric has shifted a little bit where before it was a little more coy, a little less direct. Uh, his interview yesterday, he was pretty sure that he was staying in the Commonwealth and not doing a whole lot for a presidential bid. But I don't think it's the election results. That guy is way too freakishly tall to be president. You get you got to be between 5'10 and 6'6. That's the range. And Glenn Youngkin, he can't even fit in the camera. I mean, he's we're not going to have a freakishly tall president. Wow, Sorry. too tall to be president. I Way oof. too tall. You got it. Tall is good. Freakishly tall is not good. It's just when not going to work. Tall, DeSantis must be too short. Well, Oh. You mean the guy wearing lifts in his boots? Oh. <laughs> Mike, you smiled like you agreed with me. There is a there is a limit. He's he's too tall. Yeah, I subscribe to some of those things. Um, like too tall, bald, those kind of things. As I'm losing my Not hair, happening. so I'm allowed to say that. By the way, but those are things I think that the electorate just uh, um, will will turn away from me from uh, for. Okay, so, but the juxtaposition of Tuesday against there was a new york times siena poll showing biden getting trounced by trump and there are prominent democrats david axelrod foremost among them who came out this week president obama's former strategist who came out this week and basically all but suggested biden get out of the race and I mean, it's just the juxtaposition is striking. You have a president way over a president's party way over overperforming midterms, way overperforming what was expected this past Tuesday. And it's just it's very difficult to square all of this, Patrick. I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the one thing that's similar I feel like that you hear from people in both parties looking ahead is like both sides are convinced 
that they could do well in November of next year, but they're terrified that the nominee of their party is going to blow it for them. And and I feel like that top Democrats and top Republicans say, are kind of saying the same thing. They're getting nervous because they're just looking, in the case of the Biden folks, they're just looking at the, uh, not Biden's personal network, but Democratic operatives, they're looking at the polls and they're going, man, this could really blow it for us, even with Trump as the nominee. He is just so unpopular. I mean, the, the New York Times Siena pulled the exit polling. I was texting you guys that came out that night. CNN had an exit poll that said 74% of voters don't think Biden has the stamina to make it through a second term. 74%. I mean, that is just mind-blowing to me. By so, the way, I mean, it's fair. It's a fair question. I, totally. 100%. It's just so, yeah, I think. And. You know, Caitlin, you brought up those Republican primary debates. It's like, I think I said on one of the podcasts, you feel like you're watching a 2028 debate. It's like the country knows what we're about to go through. And and I don't subscribe to, I know there's all these rumors that Biden's going to get out of the race. I just, I think that is all not true. I, I think it's I've said for a year and a half on this podcast, it's going to be Biden, Trump again. And I think the country and political operatives in both parties are just kind of like, I can't believe we're going to do this again. I cannot believe we're going to nominate these same two people again who are both clearly too old and have issues, you know, respectively. I just I think that's or there's a reckoning going on as we approach the holidays that like, yeah, this is what we're going to do again. The thing is, Caitlin, Biden has an issue. He's old. Uh, he's got more issues than that, Howard. He really? I mean, in the overall arc of history, does he? I mean, the country hasn't gone to hell in a handbasket from an economic point of view, which many people expected. He's performed, again, I mean, this is all my opinion, but performed well on the global stage. I, like, yeah, every president has issues. It's impossible to hold that office and not have, not be disagreed with. But if if he were 20 years younger, this wouldn't even be this would not this would not be a conversation. There wouldn't even be a question. Uh, I disagree with you on that. We don't have Rodney on today, so I'll I'll, I'll carry I'll I'll make the Rodney comment that he would be making here. I'm not entirely convinced we might have had a President Joe Biden had it not been against a President Trump and folks not feeling so existential about this with his family his family business dealings and some of the scandals that made even former President. Uh, Barack Obama concerned to have Joe Biden be the nominee. But I, I think we are living in this weird time where you're absolutely right. We're probably going to see another Joe Biden versus Donald Trump matchup. But in no ways, yes, compared to maybe a narcissistic sociopath. But from a policy standpoint, I uh, I, I can't uh, I can't say that age is the only problem folks have with it. Howard, one thing, because I agree with you that he's like performed well on the world stage. I, I I absolutely believe that. I do think Republican messaging going into next year, though, is going to unfairly, but that's the nature of politics, tie all of the chaos in the world to Biden. Like yep. the fact that there is just a multi-front crisis happening internationally. And you know, the Trump people are going to say this didn't happen under us. And look, we got, you know, Russia's in Ukraine and China's, you know, looking across the Taiwan and Israel, Palestine, they're going to try to paint a picture that somehow Biden is responsible for the chaos. And even though that isn't true, uh, it's a political argument, I think, that that they can make. 
mean, Iran is responsible for the Middle East chaos. Yeah. And there are Obama for that one. Well, arguably. I mean, there's certainly legitimate policy to be discussed in, in that regard. But Biden's been Biden anyway, it's my it's my opinion that he's that he's been strong. Um, I just don't I just don't think it's about anything other than his age. And frankly, if he dumped his vice president and picked somebody who could who was popular and who and I don't know if it's possible. There's such a reflex on both sides of the aisle to vilify the other side that maybe that's maybe it's impossible. But Kamala Harris is not she's unpopular in both parties. And if he dumped her and picked somebody, I don't know, name names like Cory Booker. Pete Buttigieg. Pick somebody who's popular, at least in the Democratic Party, and is viewed as somebody. I mean, she had a failed presidential campaign. I think that drags him down. I guess he, yeah. And but they I, I think he'd sooner do that than get out of the race. Yeah, and they look at their poll. I mean, I think what freaks them out about these polls, rightfully, is just the enthusiasm gap within the base. I mean, it's just. Four Democratic constituencies are not excited about Biden and those voters, you know, that we have to turn those voters out to win. I mean, I, I think Axelrod was getting to and you hear the Obama people talk about this a lot, kind of annoyingly, but they're not wrong. I, I, I think there's a perception that Biden misinterpreted what his election really was about. Like it was about stabilizing the country in the midst of tremendous turmoil. And he did that. But we made it as easy to vote in this country as we ever have in 2020 because of the pandemic. And it, it was a total disaster time. And Biden barely won, barely won. He won by less than Trump won in 2016. And he, you know, that is really going to be put to the test this time because it's it's just going to be entirely different circumstances. And it's it's I, I just think that's where the Obama people are critical of Biden, where they're he should have accepted what his election really was about. And used then this as an opportunity to transition, you know, the direction of the country elsewhere. And I feel like we have a bunch of really talented governors in the Democratic Party, a bunch of people who I think are ready to lead, and they're not going to get an opportunity this time. And it's it's a major risk. Yeah, I, I think the Axelrod stuff to me, and we were all texting and laughing about it at the time, but totally. Number one and number two always hate one another. I've said that probably 20 times on this podcast. And anybody who buys the Joe Biden was always the last one in the room with Barack Obama making the decision. And they were buddy, buddy, lunching up and whatever. Like anybody who buys that is foolish. Number yeah. two always wants to be number one. Number one and and this go this is in every agency I've I've ever worked in. It's look at Kevin McCarthy and Scalise. It's it's everywhere. Number one always ignores number two. Number one's staff always cuts out number two. It's it's just a law of nature and government. And some of this was. And look, Obama could have backed Biden in 2016. He didn't. He didn't because he didn't think he was up to the job. And apparently they still don't think he's up to the job. 
by the way, this is how Howard treats Jim Davis and I in our meetings. Just number one, hating on us, you know. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Totally dismissive. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you're, in you're totally government, right, Patrick. In government. Yeah. No, you're 100% right. And we talked about, you, Howard, you brought up the Axelrod comments. How about Obama's comments at the event in Chicago? He did not have to make that statement on the situation in Israel, he easily could have said something a little more muted, given how challenging this is for the Biden administration. And he just didn't care. He said exactly what he wanted to say without any concern for how difficult that could make things for the Biden administration. And it was like the number one story the next few days. And I'm sure the combination of Obama's comments in Chicago and Axelrod's comments on Twitter, there was a lot of four-letter words being uttered in the West Wing uh, about the Obama people. Because it's just like, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Yeah, and I mean, he... Okay, there are good people on both sides with these Hamas terrorists in Israel. And that was an awful comment. It's... I would analogize it more to what the, I mean, it's kind of the same thing, but what the secretary general of the UN said in when he said this did not happen in a vacuum, essentially blaming Israel for, for what Hamas did. It is, it is kind of the same thing. And also awful. Unpresidential, unformer presidential or whatever you want to say. I mean, follow the George Bush model. Stay out of politics like George Bush, even Bill Clinton, like stay out. Um, that being said, I did see, I mean, just stay on the golf course, stay on the golf course. I see him on the golf course multiple times a week. Slow, right? I mean, you don't want to be stuck behind him if it's a five hour round. You better, he's got to keep pace. Well, they block out three tee types and I, I did see him on Wednesday. And uh, he looked pretty happy, I got to say. The former president looked pretty happy, but he should um, he should stay quiet. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Mike and Heidi, phenomenal commentary. Thank you for the insight on New Jersey and Virginia. We will definitely have you back on in the run-up to 2024. Patrick, Caitlin, Mike, Heidi, thanks for uh, coming on. Spirited discussion. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.